and welcome back to the show. And oh my God, I can't believe it, but we are in season three. Today is the first episode, and I hope that you enjoyed the conclusion of season two. I felt that that one was very action-packed and full of great information that we can carry with you as you move forward into this particular chapter of the show. But we've covered so much material since that very first episode that even I'm having fun going back and re-listening to those very first early on episodes. And it actually makes me laugh a little bit because my speaking voice, um, see, what did my buddy Mark say? It was my Phantom of the Opera voice that I was using while I was talking in the beginning of the show. And now today it's about a couple of dudes sitting around drinking beers and chit-chatting and talking about God and shit like that. <laughs> so anyway, very different styles and um, obviously I've learned how to loosen up and not be so shaky and nervous during my recording time. But hey folks, you are listening to season three and this is episode one of the History of Religions and of course, they're gods. And of course, did I make your car shake? Or perhaps did I tickle your taints? You can see my fingers tickling your taint, right? But enough of that. I am your host, the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast, as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and their origins. So this show is basically, it's a compilation of essays, compilation of papers and research materials from leading scholars and professors all around the world, as well as authors of some of the most popular books on the subject. My go-to guys are Carrier, as well as Harari and Ehrman. And um, you can always see these sources in each episode at the very end of the description, by the way. But the scope of this show is to analyze and compare history through the scope of archaeology and logic, literature, biblical accounts, as well as extra biblical accounts, and see how they differ from one and each other. And then it's interesting to see what people hold as absolute truths from the Bible or even the Quran. Once we compare the evidence side by side, it's definitely kind of interesting. But at the end of the day, folks, that's for you to decide. I'm just laying out all the information and you take it and go on your way and do what you want. But today is July 19th, it's 2021. And this episode is entitled, Falling Angels. All right, that was my fan of the opera. But this particular episode, guys, I've literally been dying to record it as it deals with our most ancient ancestors and their superstitions from their earliest myths across all kingdoms and different cultures and times. But where did this entire concept of falling angels come from? Falling angels from heaven. Which culture initiated the narrative? And how do these narratives differ from one and another? And we're going to take a look, just a little peek at the history behind the mythical character known as Satan or Lucifer as found in Christianity, as well as Islam. But, but we are really interested in seeing where and when the Satan character was created and, more importantly, why. But unfortunately, we won't be talking about the sexy devil on Lucifer from Netflix. God, I love that show. Great show if you haven't seen it, by the way. Lucifer on Netflix. But hey, guys, thank you for listening. And please share with a friend if you think that they would enjoy the show as well and help spread the love. And by the way, dedicate this show a little bit. This episode is dedicated to Mike. He's a buddy of mine that I found on um, on Twitter. And his um, tag is uh, Crash Fist Fighter. And a happy birthday to you as well. A little belated, right? I think I wish you a happy birthday actually in lifetime. But you can actually find him at Street Punk. 
right? Our street rap punk, sorry. But I also wanted to thank him because he binge watched all of episode one, which is 17 episodes, then eight episodes from season two. What a beast! <laughs> but anyway, hey, happy birthday, brother. Also, another big thank you to my friend Patrick out there in TO. You know who you are. Thanks for the great conversations. Through the entirety of this show, from its earliest beginnings when it was just a pipe dream and an essay that I had drafted out in paper form, right? Thanks again, brother. I appreciate you hanging in there and um, having the dialogues with me for the, over the last year and a half, whatever it's been. But folks, if you give me an hour, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So if you're ready for this excellent adventure to begin, hop in and tune in and let's go find Satan. Sometime in our ancient history, our primitive ancestors were some of the most curious humans on the planet. Of course, we're talking about 50,000 years ago plus. By this time, our early cousins' brains were becoming more and more critical, becoming more observant, and more and more curious, which led to lots of unanswered questions for these people 50,000 plus years ago. So if you recall back in the very first few episodes, we can see that by this time, clans and tribes would begin to bury their dead. That wasn't unusual. That wasn't the unusual thing. Shallow graves or covering them with rocks or, you know, putting them in caves so, you know, they wouldn't be exposed to, you know, they, these bodies would stink as they decomposed. Anyway, they didn't want to see animals eating their friends. But now things started to change right around this time with supplies or gift goods. So, for example, shields, weapons, food, a hat, perhaps a fur coat, snowshoes, would now go into the graves with their loved ones, with their departed. I call this morality without a Bible or a God in its earliest stages. Loved ones would even include articles such as pottery or art that may have actually meant something to this person as well. People definitely cared for one another and were concerned about their loved ones in the afterlife. This in turn began invention of spirits who would oversee a tribe's health, the feast after a successful hunt, of course, and health. But there was also another spirit that lingered around the tribe that they didn't so much give thanks to. The spirit or spirits that brought drought, sickness. Somebody came down with the flu and infected the entire group. Or fever. Unexplained things like this. Eventually, a member of the tribe, usually an elder, would start to become as what we would later refer to as a shaman right? The witch doctor. Who would begin to start administering ways to remove these evil spirits and cast them away somewhere else, perhaps off to a neighboring tribe. Let them deal with it. This would be the forerunner of pastors and priests that we know of today. They were not only in Europe, Asia, and Africa. These shaman and evil spirits 
also traveled up to the Bering Strait near Siberia, somewhere between 25,000 and 30,000 years ago, and up and over North to, Mer to North America about 16,500 years ago, when the climate changed and glaciers melted and the paths were created, allowing these shamans and these tribes and their good spirits and bad spirits to make their way all the way down into South America taking their superstitions with them. So, science won't explain these evil spirits for another several thousand years with the discovery of medicine and perhaps better agricultural practices. How to protect your fields, right? Irrigation. How to actually get water to be able to stay within the grains during the agricultural time, right? So how did these primitive superstitions evolve in later times is the question that we're going to start asking ourselves. These evil spirits, was it always Satan? Was it always Lucifer? Was it always Beelzebub? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Why these people were so superstitious and the superstitions didn't break? They haven't even broken today. What am I talking about? Some of my most favorite Christian friends are still extremely superstitious with ideas about evil spirits. So let's dig deep and see what the origins are behind this and see if we can't crack this nut. An odd and out-of-place gospel that was written sometime in the late first century possibly mid-2nd century, using the alias Isaiah, from the Old Testament, of course. As we learned previously, the art of forgery was quite commonplace during this time in antiquity, which was also seen in Hellenistic as well as pagan literature with Zeus and Romulus. It was many times a device to get your particular message out there, especially if you were an unknown or perhaps didn't want the notoriety. Either way, we will discuss the forgery in later episodes. But in the first to early second century, a story comes to us, and it's called The Ascension of Isaiah. The Ascension of Isaiah basically tells a story about the author and how he had a vision where an angel Gabriel takes him through seven levels of heaven. Starting from the firmament, just above the earth, but below the moon, where these people believed Satan and his minions basically resided. During his visit, he sees Jesus in the vision, where Satan kills him by crucifixion on a tree. On a tree. In Isaiah's vision, Jesus is a pre-existent being, never went to earth at all, only the copy of earth and heaven, as we discussed previously, right? While Jesus is hanging on a tree, Angels feed him and keep him alive. Now, I think it's important to look back at some work that was done 3,000 years BCE, where we talked about the Babylonian princess of the underworld in the Descension of Inanna, as it's referred to, where she travels down through seven gates of hell, or the underworld. We'll, we'll call it hell just so we're staying stylistically the same. Versus Isaiah... Seven Levels of Heaven, which is a heavy Egyptian theme as well. Getting closer to the devil, where he humiliates her, and then eventually kills her. 
She rises and returns to heaven to avenge her killer. And I think that this is just another example of how the Jewish Hellenistic writers were heavily influenced by the cultures that surrounded them, along with the political climate and things going on at the time in their current worldview. Either way, this lost Christian gospel describes a cosmic Jesus being killed by the Satan character, not on earth below, but in the realms of heaven, same as in Paul's imagination. This story is extracted from the Babylonian story told 3,000 years prior with some early Jewish mythology. In ancient mythology dating back at least 4,000 years, it was very popular having that magic number seven being used, especially in Egyptian cultures, Babylonian cultures, and the Sumerian cultures. Heaven had seven levels, and so did hell, according to these writers, and their ideas of the afterlife. The lowest level was depicted as the firmament, where the demons lived. Then each level higher took you closer to where the gods or the Jewish god, resided. Ancient Egyptians believed that sin weighed you down. The more sin you had, the lower the level of heaven you would descend, possibly even to the moon or below it, with the god of darkness or perhaps the devil. But the less sin you had, the higher you would float up ultimately to be with God. In the Ascension of Isaiah, we have this traveler who travels through all seven levels with the help of an angelic deity, where he saw and witnesses and even meets with Jesus and sees Jesus killed by Satan. Now, in Jewish and Christian mythology, Satan, or the accuser of the challenger, was the angel who opposed God and was cast out of heaven to live in the firmament among the lost souls. In the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, it really makes no reference to the devil or Satan or Lucifer, other than the snake in the garden, which was later turned into the devil. And we'll talk a little bit more about, about that. But this doesn't happen until sometime around that 150 to the 100 BCE, when Jewish writers began to write about a fallen angel referred to as Satan or the morning star. Lucifer, etc. You can see these verses, you know, mentioning this character or this challenger. And you can see it in Job chapter 1, verse 6, as well as chapter 2, verse 7. Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 12, as well as Chronicles 21, 1, all from the Old Testament. But Judaism does not believe in a devil. But they do believe in Satan, who more properly, properly should be called the Satan as this demonstrates the Jewish view of Satan is very different than the Christian view. So now we're going to talk about the summary of the Jewish view, and then we'll recap and look at the Christian view of what the Satan would be. Now in Hebrew, the word Satan, will actually use their pronunciation, Shatan, means challenger, or difficulty, or distraction. Note that this is not a proper name, a person or a thing. It's rather a notion. This was the concept before later writers created what would be the fall of man narrative, with the leading word ha to make the word ha shatan, 
It refers to the challenger. The early Jewish writers metaphorically used Shatan, or Satan, as the angel who is the embodiment of man's challenges, challenging the Jew of his faith. Hashatan works for God. His job is to make choosing good over evil enough of a challenge so that it can be a meaningful choice. In other words, Hashatan is metaphorical. It's a metaphorical angel whose mission is to add adversity or difficulty and challenges and growth experiences and life. Contrast to Christianity, which sees Satan as a cosmic being and an adversary to God, performing evil, evil in men, constantly toiling in our lives. In Jewish thought, the idea there exists anything capable of setting up it as God's opponent would be considered overly polyistic. You're setting up the devil to be a god or even a demigod. That was later storytelling. In early Jewish mythology, we're talking about testing a Jew of his faith. Now some things to consider. The notion of an angel having free will is alien in Judaism. Free will requires the tension created by being or a soul dwelling in a body. People can have free will. Angels can't, at least in the early Jewish mythology. There is a debate over whether they lack the potential for free will or whether they simply perceive reality to clearly have any choices to make. But in any case, Without the fence straddling of human condition, there is no free will. Hashatan acts as a servant of God, not as an opponent or even disobedient child. Angels cannot sin, therefore they cannot fall. But where did these early Jewish writers get some of these concepts, other than what we talked about from some of our ancient cousins, right? You know, some 50,000 years prior to this. But you have to understand, Jews are exposed to a lot of different literature. Greek literature, Babylonian literature, as well as Zoroastrianism, which was what they were exposed to during their Persian period. So Zoroastrianism also had a challenger of God or an evil adversary who represented darkness. Jewish Christian writers began to convert their adversary into the same role as this char character from Zoroastrianism 600 years earlier. Many stories were developed starting with the serpent in Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, where the snake of the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit from the tree of knowledge. Ironically, the Egyptians have considered the snake and the serpent as an evil deity for thousands of years, as did the Greco-Romans with their Medusa, with her head full of snakes. So it would make sense that these Jewish writers would make their talking snake, the devil, in their particular narrative. There's also something here to consider when we're talking about this snake and his role in Genesis. And I'm actually going to take a little bit of a Jordan Peterson stance on this, um, listening to a recent podcast. But, you know, we know that these early Jewish writers, 
you know, again, oral tradition, sure, probably 1400 years before the common era. But most of the writing didn't start, the creativity didn't kick in until sometime post-Babylonian activity. And they didn't get real, real crazy with their writing until the post-Alexandrian time, right? And that's getting into that 330 BCE. But their heaviest, most critical writing you don't see until around that 160s, 150s BCE. And that's where you start getting the Isaiah and the Daniels and the Zechariah and those type of narratives. So what's interesting is, is looking through all these periods and who they're exposed to, from Babylonian to the Persians, right, to the Greeks. It's really interesting. But there is also a small window in there where they were exposed to Buddhism. So consider the tree of knowledge. Consider the snake tempting Adam and Eve to knowledge, to enlightenment. Consider this. Adam and Eve, they're naked. Body parts are exposed. That's no problem. But at the moment that the snake brings knowledge to Adam and Eve, when enlightenment comes, with enlightenment there comes a lot of responsibility. Right? This is actually really cool. Follow me. Now God comes searching for Adam and Eve. And what do they do? They hide. They create fig leaves to cover themselves. They're ashamed. They're ashamed of this knowledge that they have. And they must now leave the garden and experience the world. And take that and compare it to the Buddha story well, about, about Buddha and his story of enlightenment with his father and having to leave the palace or having to leave the garden. Changes the story. Check it out. But we're going to continue this. So let's take a look at some more of this Jewish literature, okay? Jewish literature that we have that dates sometime around that 100 BCE to perhaps 150 BCE, which is referred to as the Book of Wisdom or the Wisdom of Solomon. And in Wisdom of Solomon, by the way, this book was obviously or ultimately removed from the Old Testament by later Christian bishops uh, for whatever reason, because they deemed it heretical, because it didn't follow the, you know, the things that Christianity wanted their Bible to say. But in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4 says, It was envy of the devil that brought death into the world. Which, is, which references to Genesis' tale in which it is by the wiles of the serpent that death comes to the world. Now, the Christians adopted this view in Hebrews 2, verse 14. This led the reinterpreting Satan's role in biblical stories, such as found in the book of Job, where the devil basically has a bet with God for a dollar, that he can make Job lose his faith. So God lets Satan screw with him and, and, and kills his family, all of them, including his animals. We can't forget that the Egyptians also gave the Christian writers some ideas about Satan with Osiris's brother Seth, whose character definitely filled the bill, not to mention in Greco-Roman mythology with Medusa. They were all pre-existent evil forces battling the gods, even centuries before. But we have to talk about our guy, Lucifer, in the Christian Bible. 
which the name Lucifer literally means light bringer, corresponding to the Greek name, which I can't pronounce, which means dawn bringer. And it's basically, it's a Latin name for the planet Venus in its morning appearance and is often used for mythological and religious figures associated with that particular planet. Due to the unique movements and its discontinuous appearance of Venus in the sky, mythology surrounded these figures often involved a fall from the heavens to the earth or the underworld. This is the way that this planet would dance in the sky to these people who were watching it. It would appear in the morning extremely high, then by night it dropped very, very low. Interpretations of a similar term in the Hebrew Bible translated in the King James Version, 1611, they changed it to Lucifer. Led to a Christian tradition of applying the name Lucifer and its associated stories of a fall from heaven to the name Satan, Shatan. Most modern scholarship regards these interpretations as questionable and translates the term in the relevant Bible passages seen in Isaiah 14, verse 12, as morning star, or the shining one, rather than as the proper name, Lucifer, which was a reference to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar at the time. Remember him? And later scribes referring to his son, Belshazzar, and then later Antiochus. Now, if you recall, Belshazzar was not Nebuchadnezzar's son, but um, just a subsequent king. But as a name for the devil, the more common meaning in English is Lucifer. It is the rendering of the Hebrew word, which was a transliteration and a pronunciation of a, um, I'm going to try to pronounce it, Heyale in Isaiah 14.12, given in the King James Version of the Bible. The translators of this version took the word from the Latin Vulgate, which translated the Latin word Lucifer, which was basically uncapitalized, though, with a small l, meaning the morning star, or the planet Venus, Venus excuse me, or as an adjective, the bringer of light, light bringing, as a name for the planet in its morning aspect, Lucifer, light bringer. As a proper name in its capitalization in English. In Greco-Roman civilizations, it was often personalized and considered a god, and in some versions considered as a son of Aurora, the dawn. A similar name used by the Roman poet Catullus for the planet in its evening aspect. The Noctifer, night bringer. So this falling from heaven motif that you've probably heard from several conversations with Christians where man brought sin to the earth, right, as he fell from heaven. But the motif of a heavenly being striving for the highest seat of heaven only to be cast down to the underworld actually has its origins in the motion of the planet Venus that we just talked about, known as morning star or light bringer. But now you remember we talked about how I opened up this particular episode, the Sumerian goddess Inanna, or the Babylonian Ishtar. Remember her from season one? We talked about her quite a bit. And she is associated also with the planet Venus. And Inanna's actions in several of her myths, including the descension of Inanna, 
and Inanna's descent into the underworld appears to parallel the motions of Venus as it progresses through the synodic cycle. A similar theme is present in the, Sumer in the Sumerian myth of Etana as well, dated sometime around 2900 BCE. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to quote this piece. The brilliancy of the morning star, which eclipses all other stars, but is not seen during the night, may easily have given rise to a myth such as was told with the story of Etana and Zu. He was led by his pride to strive for the highest seat among the star gods, on the northern mountain of the gods, but was hurled down by the supreme ruler of the Babylonian Olympus. The myth of Etana is the story of the Sumerian antediluvian king of Kish, who ascends to heaven on an eagle to request the plant of birth from the gods, so that he might have a son. And Etana is named as the first king of Kish in the Sumerian king list that was composed sometime around 2100 BCE, which claims that he reigned early in the 3rd millennium BCE. Now, according to the Sumerian king list, Etana was well known. He was known as he who stabilized the lands. Right? After the gods had created order out of the chaos and established the concept of kingship and government among humanity. Etana was therefore a well-known and highly respected figure and would have been chosen as the central character for precisely these reasons. A central message of the myth is that one should trust in the gods and Etana, a great king who has been chosen by the unknown author for this particular story as the best example in conveying this particular message. The fact that the myth is so very old is attested by the cylinder seals depicting Etana on the eagle's back, which date from the reign of Sargon the Great, right, the great Arcadian king. So this is sometime around that 2334 to 2279 BCE. The British Museum has among its holdings a fragment of the myth of Etana from King Asur Bonipal's library at Nineveh, dating from the 7th century. But as G.S. Kirk points out, the Neo-Assyrian version from the Asur Bonipal's library happens to be the most serving text but where it overlaps with an old Babylonian version of a thousand years earlier, it corresponds with it very closely, sometimes word for word. A short Middle Assyrian fragment maintains the same accuracy. Now, the story contains many motifs seen and missed from every culture around, as we talked about before in the very beginning of this episode. A great city created by the gods, a search for a worthy ruler, talking animals, broken oaths, divine interventions, and quest which brings the hero to the land of the gods. This one involving an eagle of, you know, mythic proportions, of course. The myth may have been intended, as suggested by, you know, R. McRoberts, to convey a political message regarding kingship. When the story is placed in the context of the first dynasty of Kish and its exceptional rule of the 23 consecutive kings, it can be seen more than as a tale of fantasy. 
Earlier, earlier dynasties in the king list shows only a few kings ruling in succession. It is possible that the succession of the first dynasty of Kish could be owned in part by a new tradition, passing the monarchy on from male heirs of the previous king. The myth of Etana served as a colorful reminder that it was the king's duty to go and do any lengths imaginary or imaginable, excuse me, or heights as the case may be, to produce that particular heir, if that makes sense. In Jewish mythology, this would be David, of course, the lineage of kings to precede one another. So while McRoberts' observation is certainly valid here, the duty of the kings was not only to his people, but also, as we have learned, to the gods, who had not only given him life, but placed him in his particular position of kingship. Now, according to Sumerian belief, as well as Mesopotamian belief just in general, the gods had created humanity as co-workers to maintain order and keep the forces of chaos in check. The king was responsible to both the gods and his subjects to make sure that the gods' will was followed. Sound familiar? He could not perform this task if he had no faith in the gods himself. And so the myth, in addition to its many other themes, would have emphasized Etana's faith in the gods, even when it seemed as if his prayers had not yet been answered. It sounds like a test of faith. The fall from heaven motif also has a lot of parallels in the Canaanite mythology. What a surprise, right? If you've actually listened to most of season one and season two. But in ancient Canaanite religion, the morning star is actually personified as the god Attar, A-T-T-A-R, who basically attempted to occupy the throne of Baal. Right? Sound a little familiar? And finding that he was unable to do so, he ends up just descending down and ruled the underworld. Well, if I can't have the high throne of Baal, I'm going to rule my own place. I'm going to rule the underworld. Now, the original myth may have been about a lesser god, and remember the Hebrew word we talked about, Halel, trying to dethrone the Canaanite creator god, El, who lived on a mountain in the north. Now, there are parallels with Isaiah's description of the king of Babylon as fallen morning star, cast down from the heavens, are able to be found not only in Canaanite myths, but in traditional ideas of Jewish people echoed throughout biblical accounts of the fall of Adam and Eve, cast out of God's presence for wishing to be as God, and, the pictured, in, and pictured in Psalms 82, of the gods and the sons of the Most High, destined to die and fall. This Jewish tradition has echoes also in Jewish pseudopigrapha, such as to Enoch, and the life of Adam and Eve. Remember, we talked about that before. And the life of Adam and Eve, in return, also shaped the idea of Iblis in the Quran. Iblis, or alternatively, Iblis, or um, Iblis, or Ibris, is basically a figure who is frequently occurring in the Quran commonly in relation to the creation of Adam and the command to prostrate himself before him. Now, after Iblis refused, he was cast out of heaven. 
Islam heaven, of course. For many Muslim scholars, especially during the classical period, he was an angel, but regarded as jinn in contemporary scholarship. Due to his fall from God's grace, he is often compared to Satan in terms of Christian traditions. Now, the Greek myth of Phaethon is a personification of the planet Jupiter that follows a similar pattern, that of Venus. Now, in Christianity, the book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 14, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, is condemned in a prophetic yet veiled vision by the prophet Isaiah and is called, now listen to these words slowly, Halel ben Sashar, which is Hebrew for the shining one, son of the morning, who is addressed as um, Halel ben Sashar. Okay, so the title Halel ben Sashar refers to the planet Venus as the morning star, and it is how the Hebrew word is usually interpreted. The Hebrew word transliterated as Halel or Halel, the pronoun as Halel, occurs only once in the Bible. Now, the Septuagint renders in Greek as, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, Heosphoros, bringer of dawn. So the ancient Greek name for the morning star is that. So similarly, the Vulgate renders in Latin as Lucifer, the name in that language for the morning star. According to the King James Bible, based on Strong's Concordance, the original Hebrew word means the shining one or the light bearer. And the English translation given to the King James text in the Latin name for the planet Venus, Lucifer, as it was already included in the Wycliffe Bible. However, the translation of the Hebrew word as Lucifer has been abandoned in modern English translations of Isaiah 14.12, and present-day translations renders the Hebrew word as morning star, seen in the New International Version or the New Century Version or the New American Standard Bible, Good News Translations and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, Contemporary English Versions, Common English Bible, Complete Jewish Bible. So, Daystar is actually used in the New Jerusalem Bible, or the Message. Or Daystar, as in the New Revised Standard Version, or the English Standard Version. And then Shining One, as used in New Life Version, or the New World Translation, or the JPS Tanakh. Or Shining Star, as seen in New Living Translation. So, in a modern translation from the original Hebrew text, the passage in which the phrase Lucifer or morning star occurs begins with the statement from Isaiah 14. The quote goes like this. On the day of the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. Now, after describing the death of the king, the taunt continues on like this. <clears throat> Back to my Lord voice. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. 
I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost high of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? Now, some scholars are torn on who we're talking about here. Some believe that in the final verses here quoted, the king of Babylon is described not as a god or a deity or an angel, but as a mere man. And that man may not have been Nebuchadnezzar II, even though everything that this author for Isaiah was referring to. But you also got to remember, Isaiah is writing sometime much, much later. Isaiah is being written sometime around the 300s, all the way to the 150s BCE. And referring back to the great stories of the deportations and um, the Babylonian exile and things of that nature, which would portray Nebuchadnezzar as the particular person, as he was the one that decimated lands. He was the one that was building ziggurats that would reach up to the stars, right? But the king of Babylon, it may not have been Nebuchadnezzar. It may have been Belshazzar, who carried on the same traits, who is actually... The, he never actually, Belshazzar never really became a king, if you remember we talked about him before. He was Nabonidus' son. So it was Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, and then Belshazzar was his son, but Nabonidus was the guy that, he was the archaeologist. He wanted to go out and digs. Um, you know, he was really into history and wanted to go out and do that kind of stuff. Well, Belshazzar stayed back and maintained the throne, but he maintained the throne the same way that Nebuchadnezzar did right? So Nebuchadnezzar, he was gripped by a spiritual fervor to build a temple to the moon, Sin, and his son ruled as regent. Now the Abrahamic scripture text could be interpreted as a, as a weak usurping of a true king power and a taunt at the failed regency of Belshazzar. So in biblical accounts, I think they may have missed Nabonidus for one reason or another. They didn't keep track of him. So they actually placed Belshazzar as the replacement of Nebuchadnezzar. So obviously it's historically dubious, but I think we get the account that they're trying to fulfill here because Belshazzar never actually held the throne. But for the unnamed king of Babylon, a wide range of identifications have been proposed they include a Babylonian ruler of the prophet Isaiah's own time, later than Nebuchadnezzar, and under whom the Babylonian captivity of the Jews began, or Nabonidus and the Assyrian kings, um, or Sargon II. So in verse 20, it says that this king of Babylon will not be joined with them, all the kings of the nations in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land, thou hast slain thy people, the seed of evil doers shall not be named forever, but rather be cast out of the grave, while all the kings of the nations, all of them, sleep in glory, every one in his own house. Now, I would suspect that the king of Babylon was not a specific ruler, but a generic representation of the whole line of rulers all the way up to, or all the way down to Antiochus. 
right? In 160s. So we're talking about 580s, or we're talking about 605 BCE all the way down to 164 BCE. And that's why I'm talking this is what this author for Isaiah and Daniel that they were talking about. These were the Antichrist in Jewish mythology. It wasn't just one. And that's why the chronology is so boogered up, if you would, forgetting kings, forgetting dates. It's more likely that the prophet Isaiah lived during the time of Antiochus, around 150 BCE, and referred back to Nebuchadnezzar II in 586. Or more likely, multiple writers for Isaiah built onto the narrative and represented their own current times. Isaiah was probably written over several hundred years, as we've seen with the book of Daniel. Now, in this verse found in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, it is what became as the source for the popular theme, for the conception of the fallen angel motif, as seen later in the book of 1 Enoch, the apocalyptic story, 86 through 90. And then it was so good, they came out with another one the following summer, 2 Enoch, 29, 3 through 4. And when you understand in rabbinical Judaism, they absolutely reject any belief whatsoever in a rebel angel or fallen angels. But in the 11th century, the Perky D. Rabbi, Eliezer, illustrates the origins of the fallen angel myth by giving two accounts. One relates to the angel in the Garden of Eden who seduces Eve, and the other relates to the angel, the Beni Elohim, who cohabits with the daughters of man as in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, an association with Isaiah 14, 12 through verse 18, with the personification of evil, called the devil, developed outside of mainstream rabbinical Judaism, in Pseudopigrapha, and Christian mythological writings, particularly with the apocalypse as seen in the 27th book of the New Testament, Revelation, the book of Revelation describes a war in heaven between angels led by the archangel Michael against those led by the dragon, identified as the devil or Satan, who will be defeated and thrown down to the earth. Revelation's war in heaven is related to the idea of fallen angels, in which this author refers to the Hebrew Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Isaiah, Job, Daniel, etc., that we, you know, just read about above. Now let's take a look at that verse in Revelation 12, 7 through 10, in the NIV version, if you would. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Boom! But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. End quote. Now that's interesting, right? Because now we see the similarities, we see the patterns. So this particular author for Revelation is, he comes from a Jewish sect of, um, of, of Christianity, and he's writing sometime, sometime in the mid um, 150s, somewhere, somewhere around there, mid-2nd century. And we don't know if he's, so obviously he's referring to this passage in Isaiah 14, 
But does he understand that Isaiah was making a veiled comment about Nebuchadnezzar, about Belshazzar, and about Antiochus? And this is his own veiled comment about Nero, and about Domitian, and about Vespasian, and about Titus? Or does he actually believe that Isaiah was talking about an actual Satan, a Lucifer, or a morning star? That we'll never, you know, we'll never get, we'll never get to understand that. But in his own right, this author for the book of Revelation, the entire thing is a veiled political treaty, if you would. And we're going to talk more about that um, probably in another couple episodes or so. But super interesting. Um, and personally, my opinion on this is what I just said is exactly what it was. Um, if this author was reading Isaiah and un understood the history behind it and understood the veil commentary of its political nature, he probably employed the same time, same type of um, motif, right, in his particular book. So I think that's probably what he did. And as we're going to talk about more, I think you're going to find that there's a lot of hidden messages that the particular writer for um, Revelation is absolutely referring to the Roman imperial court. So now we're going to move on. and We're going to talk about Lilith. She's one of my favorite monsters. One of my favorite female evil deities, right? So even though this history of Lilith dates back some 4,000 BCE in Mesopotamian mythology, her story spans across thousands of years into the 17th century and still continues on in some cultures. So because of her connection with Lucifer, as seen in the book of Samuel, I thought that this would be the most appropriate place to tell her story, versus being discussed along with Adam or even Gilgamesh. Also, I feel that her story was one that should be told as a huge window that looks inside of the ancient Jewish mythology and their heavy superstitions that contributed to the text in the Old Testament. Now, the name Lilith, it's known everywhere around the world right? When talking about the biblical accounts of Lilith, most people can tell you that she was, in fact, the first wife of Adam, right? But rarely, however, do they know where this tale actually derived from. Nearly everyone knows that this piece of the story and those same people also know that it's not biblical. The story of Lilith is a fascinating one, and it spans much, much longer than one would even think. From ancient summer to modern-day America, the Lilith story has evolved to the point that it is no longer even recognizable from its origins. The origins and the evolution of the Lilith tale are told as follows. From its simple beginnings to its esoteric present, this is Lilith in a myth and in history. In today's world, Lilith is seen as a queen mother of all demons or a baby killer and a seductress of the night. Sometimes she can be seen as a power, powerful succubus. In fact, there is only one reference to the name Lilith in the entire Bible, and that's in Isaiah 34, verse 14. And the quote is, And desert creatures will meet hyenas, and goat demons will call out to each other. 
There are also Liliths who will settle and find for themselves a resting place. End quote. Now, first of all, there's a lot to unpack here in this verse. But for our purpose in this particular episode, we will only be focusing on the word Lilith. The translation of Lilith changes from version to version. Some translators use night creatures. Others like to use night owl. Yet others use screech owl. And there's good reason for these variations. To understand the view of Lilith as portrayed in Isaiah, we need to discuss the ideologies of the world leading up to this point. So we have to first begin by asking, who was Lilith? Or more importantly, who were they? In order to understand this, it's important to look back at the ancient home of Lilith, long before the birth of Judaism, and even before the religions of the ancient Israelites. Lilith was already something to be feared in ancient Mesopotamia. This was nowhere in the same form that we understand and know Lilith today at all by any measure. Lilith was not yet a baby-killing seductress of the night. In ancient world prior to the 7th century BCE, Lilith appears in a number of texts, and we can get a glimpse at what Lilith was originally like. One of the earliest references to Lilith is found in the story of Gilgamesh and the Hulupu tree. Now, scholars have dated this story to be right around the same time as the rest of the Gilgamesh epic, perhaps from a separate tradition, but the story seems as if it should be read after the conclusion of the Gilgamesh epic on tablet number 12. And the story itself dates sometime to around that 2100 BCE. So basically this myth goes, after creation, a holupo tree is found in the Euphrates and it's brought to the goddess Inanna. Remember her? We talked about her a little while ago. Then we would find a snake, a zoo bird, and Lilith are said to have rested there in its midst. Now, Lilith, Lilla, has built herself a home there. Inanna, wanting to rid the tree of invaders, calls upon the help of Gilgamesh, who is said to have destroyed the snake. Upon seeing this, the bird and Lilith flee, and they run away. Now, Lilith destroys her new home and escapes to Adi Adi, Ace Desert. Now, from this text, we can surmise that the ancient notion of Lilith included her home being in the desert. To understand Lilith in the ancient world is necessary to know the differences in the usage of the word Lilith. Because in contrast to the modern perception of Lilith, which makes her out to be an evil woman, the ancient perception of Lilith was actually a class of demons instead of the singular entity in today's lore. Now, now, Lilith was more of a title for a set of demons versus just one being. Now, the Sumerian Lilin, L-I-L-A-N, is the normal plural, the masculine plural being Lili, and the feminine singular being Lilith. Now, in the Akkadian culture, the name, the same word is Lilu, L-I-L-O-U, with the feminine being L-I-L-L-A, Lila, so Lilu monsters and Lila monsters. So keep this in mind when various forms of this word appears to us in these texts. Because knowing this, the reference in the Sumerian king's 
list two, Gilgamesh's father being a lily demon makes more sense to the reader now. The, the Lulu were a class of demons that consisted of both male and female demons, not just one female creature of the night. And so for this particular episode, we're only going to focus on the female lily demons, with only brief references to the male ones when needed, when it makes sense, okay? So this class of demons is expanded on in vast set of Assyrian as well as Babylonian incantations, right? So keep in mind that the, that the specific incantations are hard to date, but generally come from the same 400-year-old Babylonian period, lasting from right around 2000 to 1600 before the Common Era. Now, the classes of demons include the disembodied human soul, half-human and half-demon spirits, devils and friends, which were all seen as being just as powerful as the gods and rode on the winds. And the Lulu and Latutu and Ardat Lily were chief among the demons. The, the Lulutu and the Ardat Lily were just the feminine counterparts to the more general Lulu demon. So, in their ancient context, the, the Lulu monster could easily be described as a kind of a ghost. The female Lilin monsters were seen as the ghosts of women who had died in childbirth. Dum, bum, bum, right? So, for this reason, the main fear of Lily and Ardat Lily was that they would bear devilish children called Alu with mortal men. To put into context, our dot Lily was described as having no husband. She wanders unable to rest until she is satisfied. So this wandering place being a precursor to the Lilith described in Isaiah in the desert, one line describes our dot Lily as being a phantom of the night that roams in the desert. To protect against these demons, the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians wrote incantations against them as wards and spells to banish, them, to banish them off. So, for example, in an Arcadian text, number 406 is written against Ardot Lily. Text 90 is written against Lil, Lila, occupant of the steep. Lil by itself actually means wind. Now, recall how these demons were said to ride on the wind? We talked about that in the scene in these contexts. The identification of this text as being against a member of this demonic class, and it's further strengthened by noting that the form used here, Lila, is the same form of Lilith, used in the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the Hulupu tree, as discussed earlier. Now, sadly, the text after these, you know, dis described Lulu demons would be lost to history until around the 7th century BCE. But one of these is a small inscription on a bronze statuette of a four-winged god, Pazuzu, in which we are told he is the son of Hanpu, king of the Lulu demons. This identification of Hanpu is the king of Lulu demons that actually contradicts some of the texts we covered later, which also give different accounts of who is the king of the Lulu demons. While important in ancient demonology, 
it wouldn't be the focus of the discussion for this particular topic, but definitely one that we'd like to talk about some other time. Now, examples of the Pazuzu God, you can actually pull up the scripture, and I advise that you do, with that has the inscription on it. Because if you remember the movie The Exorcist from the 70s, and the opening scene with the archaeologist, and they find that little four-winged demon. That's it. That is the Pazuzu God. So take a look at it. Now, another more important text for understanding the history of Lilith are the Arslan Tash Amulets. And I really say these slow because I want you to be able to pull them up. Arslan Tash Amulets. So these are basically small plaques that were found in northern Syria and present an important step in the evolution of the Lilith myth. And the authenticity of these tablets is still in debate. So keep that in mind during these particular discussions that we're having here. But scholars Cross and Saley in the field date the amulets to the 7th century BCE, around the same time as the Pazuzu heads. Written in Phoenician script in the incantations refer to three categories of demons. Sasam, the god, lamb stranglers, and divine flyers. All right, Sasam, the god, lamb stranglers, and divine flyers. So for this study, in this particular part of the, um, of the episode, we're only going to focus on the divine flyers for now. So consider the following line from one of the amulets that were found. O flyer, from the dark room, pass away, now, now, night demon, Lilin. So it's clear that the divine flyer can also be described as a night demon's. So for our purpose here, it is to be noted that the words that Cross and Style translate as night demon is actually Lilin. I find the use of these amulets to be an interesting step in the Lilith story as well. Throughout the inscriptions, evil beings are being addressed. Now on these amulets, it's basically a command for these demons to stay away. And it's a deal that's made, and, and, it's a, and, and it's a covenant that's made with the gods that, these, that, that whoever they're appealing to. So typically in lines 5 through 8 that we read, The house I enter, ye shall not enter. And the court I tread, ye shall not tread. Now this recalls the ancient Assyrian and Babylonian incantations that we discussed earlier in this episode. Both share the distinct features of calling upon certain gods, those gods being set against some greater evil, and they both call upon a divine oath. And this system of warding away demons persists all the way to today in Jewish mythology or in Jewish tradition, but in a more watered-down form as seen in the mezuzah, M-E-Z-U-Z-A-H. So what is a mezuzah? You can actually pull it up and take a look, call a Jewish friend and ask him right now. But these are basically hung up on doorposts as signals to all who enter, who, who enter, be it natural or supernatural, that this home is Jewish and is therefore a reminder that the place is holy. So Cross and Saley describe these amulets as pagan prototypes of the mezuzah. Now, after the 7th century BCE, the next reference that we get to Lilith is in the verse found in the book of Isaiah. So this book, as we know, it's post-exilic 
sometime after 537 BCE, and probably more so into the 330s during the post-Alexandrian period, or the Hellenistic period, and it was written as a prophecy against all nations with an emphasis on Adam. And actually, for a fuller argument on the dating of this particular chapter, I suggest a section in Erdman's commentary, if you want to. But Lilith shows up nowhere in any text until the Hellenistic period. During this period, the Greek mythological figure, Lamia, who has shared similar attributes with Lilith, was promptly associated with her. But it's unclear how far back this connection actually goes that we can tell. But they are different enough to show that these two evolved separately until this point in Hellenistic Judaism. Now, the word Lamia was actually used to mean Lilith in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, if you would. Lilith in Isaiah 34 verse 14 is translated to Lamia, actually. So this association would eventually lead to Lilith's depiction of the snake in the Garden of Eden by even later scribes. It's fascinating, right? So the first reference to Lilith in this particular time period, turning to the 2nd century BCE to the 1st century of the Common Era, we find a reference to Lilith in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Quamran Caves, specifically found in cave number 4. We find one explicit reference and another implicit reference in the form of incantation used for exorcism. The, 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 the first text to examine is 4Q 5.10 through 11. And this is obviously one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we're talking about, right? So this is sometimes referred to as Songs of Sage. And in this text, God is called upon to terrify demons that are leading men astray. We don't hear about these books in the Bible, do we? Or from your church. But specifically, the text identify these culprits, destroying angels, spirits of the bastards, demons, and Lilith, howlers, and desert dwellers. This song was a chant to protect from evil spirits. Now, although the Lilith here does not contain much description, their existence was ultimately detrimental to the well-being of the Sons of Light. Now, in the second Quamran text, it's item number 4Q560. This was written also as an exorcism spell that specifically targeted on midwives, of all people, right? <laughs> How ironic. But although the text is broken in places, we will be following the translation and reconstruction. The midwife, the punishment for those who bear children, any evil visitant or demon, I adjure you. All who enter into the body, the male-wasting demon and the female-wasting demon, I adjure you by the name of the Lord, he who removed iniquity and transgression, O fever demon and chills demon and chest pain demon, you are forbidden to disturb by night using dreams or by day during sleep, O male shrine spirit and female shrine spirit, Oh, you demons who breach walls, wicked. Following this in column two, the text becomes even more fragmentary. 
But from the first column, there is a lot to be gathered about how demons were viewed in the eyes of at least one Jewish sect around the turn of the first millennium. The author of this incantation has not only associated midwives with the evil visitants or demons, but also paints these kinds of demons as bringers of sickness. Now, with that said, we can actually tie these myths back to 50,000 years ago. When we talked about the spirits, the spirits that these people were thankful for, for the hunt, for the feast, for the rain, right, for the growth of crops. And then there were the spirits that they weren't so thankful for, right? The ones that brought chest colds, pains, loss of childbirth, mothers dying during childbirth, right? All these kinds of things. Fever. So now we can see this evolution of these stories being told and to the point that we create such a superstitious people during this particular time, some 700 BCE, 2,700 years ago. It's fascinating, isn't it? So we can see that these, these spirits actually start to take on names. Obviously before that, some, some 6,000 years ago, right from this point back, these creatures were being assigned particular names. But it's interesting now that we see this happening within the Lulu or the Lily or the Lilith monsters, the creatures of the night, the night crawlers, the night howlers. So it's super interesting to see how these perceptions were 50,000 years ago all the way up to some 3,000 years ago. It's fascinating. Now, even though, however, not explicitly, the subject in this incantation is written against most probably against the Lilith demons. Because childbirth and its attendant complications were the primary domain of Lilith demons, right? Every time a, somebody lost a child during birth, or even the worse, the mother dies during childbirth, it was the cause of the Lilith demons and this superstition. But this, this was also discussed in the Babylonian as well as the Assyrian incantations as well. So Lilith has made her way all the way around Mesopotamia. She's well known. But it will be also expanded upon a little bit later on in this episode as we talk about some Aramaic incantation, incantation bowls as well. So you can see these people were so superstitious. And to the point that they used exorcisms to cast out these demons. Very interesting. So the concept of a midwife as evil stems from the belief that demons could appear as midwives and even cause illness to fall upon the mother or perhaps a child or both. And Lilith was believed to enter the room of pregnant women in many forms and was adjured from doing so in, because of numerous incantations. Now, you gotta keep in mind as we're talking about this stuff, this is our Old Testament Judaism. This is the information that we found in the scrolls in the Qumran caves along with the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So we're talking about all the books in the Old Testament plus all of these strange and odd superstitious incantations that are also very similar to a people that even exceeds or expands beyond Judaism 
to the Assyrians and the Babylonians thousands of years beforehand. So something to just keep in mind as we talk about that. And then when you start thinking about how superstitious these writers were of the Old Testament, you can kind of put together some of those verses and understand just how strange of a people they were. <laughs> now, the influence of the Greek Lamia creature, it actually begins to rear its head during this time period, but with a much wider range of evil, being associated to the ancient concept of lily demons. Not too long after this, we see a full merging or conflation of what we can presume is the class of demons known as Liliths and the Greek evil woman, Lamia. Not much is known about the influence of Lamia and Lilith on each other, so we could actually be very wrong here, but let's, let's keep going. But we can only go off the evidence that we have been presented with and try to put it all together into a working model that we can use, right? This is, this is how we determine history. But seemingly, the most important attributes are combined into one. This we know for sure. This comes from the Testament of Solomon. So, the date of composition is it's still highly debated, but it's generally seen as being written by the 3rd century of the Common Era. Now, keep in mind when we discuss the text itself. In this apocalyptic text, Solomon is shown to have complete control over all demons. All right. So one of the demons he runs into is a female demon named, I'm going to spell it for you, but it's Obizuth, O-B-I-Z-U-T-H, Obizuth is how I believe it's going to be pronounced. So she is basically described as having messy hair and invisible limbs and a body that's covered in darkness. So she describes her attributes demonic duties and, and her, what her goals are to Solomon. And here we are told that she does not sleep at night. And she visits women during childbirth and strangles the child if she's lucky. And she roams everywhere, travels along the wind, and can only rest after she has killed. So she says that her only goal is to destroy children. So you understand why archaeologists and historians try to make a connection here with Lilith, right? So, so she will strike them with blindness, deafness, muteness, even mental health problems, and hurt their bodies. And then when asked why she was so frustrated, she replied that she was angry with the angel Aphorot, A-F-A-R-O-T, who was identified as Raphael. Interestingly enough. Anyway, so this demon, Obizuth, claims that if any man know it and write the name on a woman in childbirth, then I shall not be able to enter her. Okay, so you getting this? So, so as to how prominent this tradition was, we do not know. But it's clear that the demon referred to in the Testament of Solomon is to be identified with Lilith since they share all of the same features. So what should strike us the most is the prescription that she rode on the wind, the same way that ancient Lulu demons did, riding on the wind. And it remains unclear, however, why the name Obizuth was used instead of Lilith. Now, 
if the demoness was not supposed to be Lilith at all, but a complete other demon, she certainly shares an uncanny resemblance with her. Does she not? But the description of Lilith and her incantations with humans, it's expanded upon in the rabbinical Babylonian Talmud. And the text is written in the early 2nd century and expanded upon later throughout the next two centuries. But we are told that one may not sleep in a house alone, and whoever sleeps in a house alone is seized by Lilith. So we've got an association with Lilith in Judaism right here in the rabbinical Judaism, our rabbinical Talmud. From one Talmudic author who wrote the book of Everin, we learn of ten curses that were put on Eve. That's right. Now we're pulling Eve into the mix. And all of these have to do with marriage, motherhood, and, and womanhood. And of these particular curses, Eve is not allowed to marry two men. Now remember, she was married to Adam. So this is basically saying that Eve cannot marry ever again. And if she did, she was said to grow long hair like that of Lilith. And then in another Talmudic author in the book of Nida reports that Rabbi Judah citing Samuel ruled, if an abortion had the likeliness of Lilith, its mother is unclean by reason of the birth. For it is a child, but has wings. So it was also taught by Rabbi Jose, who stated, it once happened at Simoni that a woman aborted the likeliness of Lilith. And when the case came up for a decision before the sages, they ruled that it was a child, but it also had wings. So what does all this mean? Did they literally believe children could be born with wings like Lilith? I don't think so. But from what we can tell, the ancient Lilu demons of old had morphed from desert-dwelling night demons that haunted men to mean more or less a bad woman, or at least, according to the Talmudic authors, it was about evil women. Now, Lilith can be seen as the platonic form of an evil woman, or a bad woman. You take a look at the messy hair, and it's probably a reference to it being disheveled or untidy, perhaps promiscuous. And then the wings. The wings are probably a metaphor for adultery in general. And the child with wings would be the one born out of wedlock or from an adulterous woman. And the men being seized by Lilith might be a reference to nightly emissions, to put it lightly. Although that one is a little bit less clear, it would fit with the perception of the Ardot Lily of Mesopotamia that we talked about a little bit earlier. So this view of Lilith would be depicted in the art as well as the incantations of that era as well. And so there are a set of incantation bowls that were discovered, they're uncovered, which shed light on the image of Lilith and the threat that this night demon possessed. So now, if you have the essay that I had sent out to a few of you, just as a point of reference, if you refer to page 549, you can actually see a couple examples of what these incantation bowls look like. And um, you can obviously Google them as well. But so basically, they're what you would imagine. They're like a large size wooden bowl. You know, I'd probably say some of these range anywhere from 12 inches all the way up to like a 22 inch big ass salad bowl, right? 
and then basically all the writing of the incantations are on the inside of the bowl. And they basically just start off from the very top edge and work their way down, all the way down to the center of the bowl. And usually in the center of the bowl, there's some sort of image of what this particular artist's idea of what the Lilith demon would look like, you know, some sort of like little monstrous looking thing. But all these little lines are all reciting those incantations that we discussed earlier. So these bowls that we have, they describe and depict Lilith and her evil ways. So we're not going to be able to take the time to discuss every bowl as there are many, like especially if you went and did Google them that took a look at Babylonian incantation bowls or Mesopotamian incantation bowls, but we're going to talk about Lilith as depicted in, on some of them. Now, these bowls were often placed in each corner of a room, and they were inscribed with spells to ward off evil demons, such as Lilith. So, interestingly enough, these bowls included spells created by Joshua ben Paria, who often used the word gets. So, this was a document of divorce. The spells, in some sense, literally telling these demons that they were getting a divorce. Interesting, right? So in bowl number one, where we'll talk about, and you'd have to be able to look at the images on there, but the one bowl that we're going to talk about talks about Lilith haunting people in dreams and visions, echoing the ancient perception of the Lulu demons. So this bowl also describes Lilith coming in the form of the opposite gender. And then bowl number six, again, referring to the, uh, to the essay, references the male and the female Liliths, as well as both are fond of killing children. It's just what they do. And then the remaining bowls, 7, 8, and 9, as well as 19, contain spells urging these demons to stay out of the bedroom. So this played on the fears of Lilith's demons and expanded upon long traditions of incantations to keep them away. Perhaps especially during childbirth, these bowls would be set all four corners of the room. And then another one of the bowls, it says that they strike both boys and girls. And it even describes a family of Liliths. Not just one, but a family of these demons. And they each have their own names with a different lineage. And then there's another bowl that details their desire to destroy, kill, tear, strangle, and eat children. There's a strange divide between the singular female Lilith and the Lulu class of demons around this particular time. It, it seems, anyway. In one sense, Lilith was the evil woman that personified all evil women. In another sense, Lilith hadn't changed much since her early beginnings in Mesopotamia. While these two concepts are mutually exclusive, it seems that the transition was actually very slow over time as she evolved, as her myth evolved. So perhaps these developed through separate traditions altogether. This curiosity is further complicated through a story about Elijah that we read, read about in the Old Testament in the books of Kings. Because in this particular book, the prophet is meeting Lilith, which is described on one of the incantation bowls. And in the story, Elijah is walking down the road and runs into Lilith and her entire band of Lilu demons. And then Elijah questions her on where they were going. 
And Lilith says she is on her way to a house of a woman in childbirth and to go to her sleep and bring her the sleep of death and take her child who is being born to her to suck its blood and to suck out the marrow from its bones and to eat its flesh. Now, of course, upon hearing this, our prophet Elijah from the Old Testament ensnares her by speaking the name of God. And then she begs for her freedom and promised to no longer seek out this mother and child. And then she goes on to tell him that if she happens to see her names, she has said that she has multiple names, she and her band will have no power anymore to do any evil. So the idea of divine names has permeated nearly every text that wants to ward demons away or overcome them in some way. The idea in this Elijah story is somewhat different to how divine beings are invoked in other texts in the same nature or of the same nature. So usually the names are meant to invoke a deity or an angel to protect them. But in this text, it seems that the names that will ward Lilith away are her own and not a god or a holy being. So it's a little bit different. So perhaps this stems from the ancient Egyptian belief that knowing someone's true name suggests power over them. And I think we've heard that kind of translated over time, even seen in horror movies, right, with the evil spirits in it. But although it is unusual, the text actually includes multiple names at the very beginning as an invocation. You know, more than likely. So three of these names are, and pay attention to these, Senoi, Sansanoi, and Samengolaf. So Sensoi, Sansanoi, and Samengolaf. So these names are transliterated in many ways. But keep in mind, the next time they appear is actually in another text that discusses Lilith in the alphabet of ben Sirah. So this is actually the earliest text that contains the story of who the evil Lilith is. Now it's a completely singular woman and what her origins are as well as why she is so evil. Now the text itself, although dating slightly later than the Aramaic incantation bowls, most probably from the 8th all the way through the 10th century BCE, and they come from the same Geonic or Talmudic period. So it's no surprise how similar the texts are in the unique listings of Lilith, along with the three names that we just discussed. So according to the authors Stern and Mirsky, the text was probably written in a Muslim country, and it may be the earliest parody in Jewish mythology. So throughout its history, the perception of this book has quite a range. At one extreme, it was seen as a source of halakha law. And on the other hand, it was seen as the vilest form of blasphemy that there could actually be. Now, there are many reasons that this book could be seen as a problem. Because it's important to know that this book contains 22 aphorisms. One for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The person speaking these is the legendary Jesus ben Sirach, who we talked about before otherwise known simply by Ben Sirach. And he is the author of the highly influential book of Ben Sirach, which was written during the 5th century before the Common Era. The alphabet of Ben Sirach wasn't actually written by Ben Sirach at all. 
it was simply ascribed to him, as we've seen all throughout antiquity. After the aphorisms, there is another set of 22 episodes. And these are questions posed to Ben Sirah by King Nebuchadnezzar. So Ben Sirah responds to each of these with a story. And in one case, Nebuchadnezzar's son, who they believed was Belshazzar at the time, who we know was not his son, he was the son of Nabonidus, and he never actually was a king. But, but, but in this particular story, we'll just go with it, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, had fallen ill, and the king asked Ben Sirah for his help. So Ben Sirah gives the child an amulet that we talked about before, and this amulet contained the three names, Sanoi, San, San Sanoi, and Salmon Galaf. Now, these names occur on the incantation bowls discussed previously preceding the Elijah story. So Nebuchadnezzar inquires as to what these names mean. And Ben Sirah responds to him and informs him that these are the angels of medicine. Isn't this crazy? So he then continues to tell the story of Adam and his first wife, Lilith. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so in the beginning, there was only Adam. God created for him a woman whose name was Lilith. Adam and Lilith immediately began to fight. Now, I don't know. I mean, Adam was probably a dick, and maybe she wouldn't put out. Who knows? She was, she was frigid. <laughs> but that's not the Lilith we know, right? So she said to Adam, I will not lie below you. And so that basically means she would not let Adam mount her during sex. Right? So you get it? And she would only ride on top of him. So Adam responded, I will not lie beneath you, but only on top, for you are only fit to be in the bottom position, while I am to be in the superior one. You guys are starting to see Jewish mythology making its way into the way how they perceive women, right? So their arguments went nowhere. And then what did Lilith do with her wings? She flew away. And then Adam prayed to God, and, and, and God basically sent those three angels, Senoi, Sensensoi, and Samangaloth, to bring her back. An ultimatum was given which said, if Lilith returned, all would be well and forgiven. Eventually, these three angels, they caught up with her and they met her at the Red Sea. But upon hearing the ultimatum that God had set forth, she still said, no, I'm not going back. So what the angels do, they threatened to drown her in the Red Sea. And she asked them to leave and claimed that she was only created to cause sickness on infants. And then the angels again attempted to persuade her to come back, but she still refused. She said that if she saw the names of the angels written in a child's amulet, she would then have to be forced to leave. And the child would live a happy, healthy life. So the angels left without her, and a hundred demons die every single day now. It is because of this that the names of these angels are to be written on amulets, the three angels that we talked about before. Now, that idea of a first wife of Adam probably arose as a solution to the discrepancy that's found in the first two chapters in Genesis. In Genesis 1, verse 27, we are told that God had created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
So this sounds like both male and female were created simultaneously at the same time, right? So in Genesis 2, verses 22, we were told that God created woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man Adam. And then he brought her to the man. So this passage shows that God created the woman after the man. So which one is it we have to ask? Were they created at the same time? Or were they created at separate times? So a lot of modern scholars generally agree that these two passages are from different authors, which we are absolutely aware of. So there is no actual problem. Just two narratives being patched together by two different writers, as seen all through Genesis and every other book in the Old, the Old Testament. So Eloist and Yahwist and the priestly source, of course, patched these letters together and didn't catch the mistake. So, again, there is no real actual problem, at least from a critical standpoint. But it seems that the author of the alphabet of Ben Sirah, and presumably some of the rabbis, reasoned that the first passage is referring to a different woman altogether, and that first woman was absolutely not that of Eve. Now, while many scholars today see the alphabet of Ben Sirah as an ancient Jewish parody, the little story found within it, it still permeates our culture. The three angels that are to be listed on the amulets occur both in the alphabet as well as in the incantations. So it is to no surprise to us that we see these names written somewhere during the birth of a Jewish child as well. There was a multitude of spells and rituals that were all associated during childbirth in Jewish medieval homes. So psalms could be chanted, scrolls could be placed on the bed or hung in the door, and candles would be lit. The woman could wear an article of her husband's clothing. But aside from these and many more ideas, one of the most popular birthing rituals included protecting the mother and the child from Lilith. And we see this over and over and over again in these incantations. Now, the names of the three angels that were written on the amulets, recalling the alphabet's account, the ritual of writing the angels' names on birthing amulets preceded the story, of course, but it's unclear where it began. Perhaps it found its origins in the geonic period. The tradition was at least upheld until the 11th century when the Kabbalistic book of the Raziel, R-A-Z, I-E-L, Razel, was written where multiple copies of these birthing amulets begin to appear, all containing the names of these three angels of medicine. Now, this custom continued all the way through, believe it or not, into the 17th century, and we're talking of the common era. Now, we also have to talk about Leon Modena who's basically, he's the 17th century chief rabbi of Venice, who recorded the use of birthing amulets in his city. Most of it, obviously, we're fairly familiar with. But the paper amulet was written to protect the child and the mother from Lilith, and on it included the names of the three angels of medicine. Now, one thing that struck me weird about his description was that the amulets were all placed in all four corners of the room as well echoing the way that many of the ancient Aramaic incantation bowls were to be used. It may also interest you to know that sometimes during the birth, a circle would be drawn around the bed to serve as additional protection from Lilith. 
This was, of course, on top of the use of the amulets. Another important Lilith myth comes to us from the Midrash Abkir, which is dated sometime around the 10th century of the Common Era. And this is a commentary on the book of Genesis, as well as Exodus, and is only preserved in the writings by others. So to our knowledge, no English translations of all the fragments exist. So I'm only going to quote from Raphael Patai, who in his book, The Hebrew Goddess, that recounts this particular tale of Lilith. Other sources of the story seem to all be quoting from Raphael Patai as well. So, usually using his words verbatim, but not actually citing him. Because I could not find any English translations of the story Patai tells. Excuse me, man, that was hard to say. So, I couldn't actually verify it. So, this needs to be taken, actually, with a grain of salt, unless you can read Hebrew, for that matter, and many are trying to break it down. Now, according to Patai, Adam, we learned, was a perfect saint. And when he understood that because of his sin, or consequence of Cain's fratricide, death came into the world. So, he separated himself from Eve, slept alone, and went off to fast for uh, 130 years. But Lilith, whose name is Pizna in this particular writing, ended up finding Adam. And she desired his beauty, which was like that of the sun disk, and she would lay with him. Now, the issues of these unions were that demons and spirits called the plagues of mankind, who lurk under doorways and wells and in latrines, and they lead men astray. Now, the idea that Adam and Lilith partnered Lilith and evil spirits became a mainstay in many mystical writings of Kabbalah. Now, Kabbalah is, in fact, the next phase in evolution of the Lilith myth. The main text in the Kabbalah Jewish mysticism is Zohar. It was written after the Kabbalah, which had actually originated. We will discuss the text of Zohar after the fact, but we've got to get through this first. But the origins of Kabbalah are the whole other story in itself. But for now, we're going to take a look at the 13th century Kabbalist, Isaac Cohen of Saria. Now, there was already a vast body of literature and rabbinical writings on the topics of demons and demonology. But Cohen greatly expanded the mythos. He claimed to be using the ancient text. So, lesser Kabbalah and Sefer Malbush. Okay, you just got to follow along with me and you can look these up or you can refer to the essay. But whichever copies he used must not have had any relationships to the text of those names that we know of today. So Isaac Cohen in his treaty, Left Emanations, describes the myth of Lilith and Samuel. This was the reworking of the more natural of the alphabet of Ben Sirah and more divine history. Now, this is where I think it gets kind of cool, because he tells us the story of Lilith and Samael. Now, Samael was originally a fallen angel, only later to be named Lucifer, as seen in the Book of Enoch. As well as if you're watching the show Lucifer on Netflix, like I mentioned before, you'll also see an episode where God refers to him as Samael. So, he was also described in some 2nd century Gnostic texts as Blind God, or God of the Blind, or of the Blind Archon. 
So eventually, he was promoted in later rabbinical literature to the archangel in charge of Rome. According to Cohen, Samael and Lilith were created as one, a hermaphroditic being, if you would. And in this tradition of thought, Adam and Eve were also created simultaneously. So Cohen was designing a divine parallelism. Lilith was never the first wife of Adam, as it was previously considered, but according to Cohen, she was always the wife of Samael. Together they ruled the world of darkness and the satanic power. Now, Samael, who was already seen as Satan, was now given a wife that personified vice as well as sexuality. Now, the Kabbalistic view of Lilith didn't just end there, because seemingly there was a huge divergence and a tradition into the 13th century. Rabbis seemed to create this new version of Lilith every time they wrote about her. They must have been obsessed with her, as most men were. So, for sake of the brevity, we will only cover a few readings from, the, from, from Zohar. So, the major work of the Kabbalah there are diverging narratives about the birth, life, and death of Lilith that arise around this time as well. So it would be unreasonable for us to cover all of them on this particular episode. Maybe I'll do a little bit more later on. But the last large-scale development in the Lilith mythology comes in the esoteric Zohar. This text was, for a long time, was believed to be the work of the Talmudic authors. However, most scholars today accept that it was written sometime in the 13th century by Moses de Leon. According to the Zohar, Lilith makes darkness, and it is night. She is also said to be equal in power to the angels. This would make sense if she was created in the same form as Samael, who was viewed as the powerful angel in Jewish mythology. So here, too, we shall see the myth of the the hermaphroditic Adam, I'm probably messing that word up though, but, but this time we are told that in very ancient occult book, we have found it stated that what God took from the side of Adam was not rib, but that of Lilith, who had cohabitated with him and given birth to his offspring. She was, however, an unsuitable helpmate for Adam in God's eyes. So as one can see, the Lilith legend has many narratives of her birth and relationship to Adam, which were diverging even more greatly by the time the 13th century came. So think about her origins and how long this myth has been amongst us. You know, we're talking about some 4000 BCE all the way up to the 13th century. Oh my gosh, she's lived multiple Yahweh lifetimes. Right? It's crazy. So, after their divorce, so to speak, they descend to Earth, meaning that in this interpretation, they had already existed celestially. Until then, this is consistent with most biblical characters, including that of Jesus in the New Testament, until later humanizing sex that historicized him, of course. So as you can see, the Lilith myth has developed quite a lot during the past 
six some thousand years from the class of mesopotamian night demons that rode on the wind to an evil visitant during childbirth causing complications with birth to a baby killing seductress of men and mothers of demons to the wife of adam to a feared queen of darkness lilith is still warded against by some in many ancient cultures including the Jews today, with their mezuzah displayed above the door, and even in some cases, those incantation bowls in all four corners of a birthing room. Developing from the ancient lily demons, it only makes sense that this myth would develop into the very idea of a bad woman or an evil woman. Building in the back of this and the identification with the Greek Lamaya, Lilith would come to be depicted in the Christian and Jewish folklore as the snake in the garden, as found in the book of Genesis, and the eventual fall of man narrative that we discussed in the earlier um, part of this episode, right? Underneath falling angels. So as Rebecca Lessis notes about the Aramaic incantation bulls, as specifically female de demons as Liliths are the antitype of the proper woman both in ancient and rabbinical sources and in incantation bowls. Instead of marrying and forming a, you know, a household with her husband, giving birth to children and nourishing and raising them, the Lilith pursues whoever she wishes in her promiscuity. She comes between husbands and wives and kills their children. She is the anarchic figure which realms sexuality and reproduction and presents a nightmare image of a woman who is not constrained by laws and convention or that of sanity. all I got for today. So this one took about two and a half days to record. And um, man, I was really excited to get this one done. And I so hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did studying about it and sharing it with you all here today. And the thing that I want to be the most important takeaway of, of all is how old this myth is of the Lilith monster and equally that of Lucifer or of Satan. And you can almost take these myths and trace them all the way back to our most ancient ancestors some 35 to 50,000 years ago when we first began storytelling. And we had those spirits, spirits that we thanked and spirits that we feared and we tried to figure out how to ward off. And over the evolution of human nature, do we begin to figure out ways to really ward off these particular demons which in turn and this is not a jewish thing this is things of heavy mesopotamian heavy african it, it, it covers the whole mediterranean and it covers all of north and south america some 16 to 20,000 years ago when our native um, ancestors made the trek over the Barang strait and all the way down into south america all the way into Australia and New Zealand, if we know them today, which was some 60,000 years ago. 
So these stories would naturally evolve from the starting point of um, East Africa, as our you know, ancient humans and sapiens managed to start sharing their tales. But what is so interesting are the tales of Lucifer and the tales of Lilith, as they came to us some 6,000 years ago. Yes, these tales were being developed as Yahweh was creating the universe. Okay, blah, 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 blah. You, you, can, you can have that all you want. But understanding how these stories told from Epic of Gilgamesh to, you know, sharing the stories of Ishtar, the Babylonian princess, to, to Inanna, and to how they were all so shared to find their way into the book that's not supposed to be mythology and to be taking, taken literally that of the Torah, the Old Testament, which transfers over into the New Testament, that these characters all make their way in. So you take it however you want, take it with a grain of salt. All I ask is you go do your own study. Look into it. It's fascinating. But I'm supposed to take the Old Testament, I'm supposed to take the Bible as the true and final word of God. Well, then if that's the case, I have to take all these Babylonian, all these Assyrian, all these Sumerian texts along with it too, because their characters are also included. Anyway, that's how I'm going to end it, guys. I'm very happy, and um, man, I'm going to talk to you soon. I'm going to start recording next week on episode two, and um, don't be bummed because it's going to be fun, but we're going to do a quick little episode on cross-examining the crucifixion narrative. Now it's not going to be heavy on this stuff. You're going to love it because it's, it's actually one that I released in textual form um, for a Christmas special. But since we're on now page 555, and I really wish I was on page 666, but I'm not. So if you're on the essay 555, and it's cross-examining the crucifixion narrative, because we're going to pull in some of these old freaking narratives that is outside of rabbinical thinking. Um, that's going to be extremely cool, and you guys are going to... Um, some laugh-out-loud moments, some oh-my-god moments, some hey, that's not true but it ties it all together into a nice little bow from the skeptical heathen to you, my loves. Anyway, guys, hey, I'm out. Shit, it's Friday. Have a great fucking weekend. It's going to be amazing. And do you guys, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going crazy here, but I'm going to go see a Shakespearean play in the park tonight. So that's going to be amazing. And when I follow back up with you guys, I'll tell you all about it. Guys, peace out. Be good humans, be good Christians, and be good atheists. This has been a Skeptical Ghost Heathen production.